Hello and welcome to another episode of Opposition Cast. And uh, this week we're talking about the issue of elections, and in particular elections that result in surprising outcomes. And I think it's fair to say that over the last 10 years, we've had a fair number of those on both sides of the Atlantic. In fact, if we look at the result of the Brexit referendum and the election of Donald Trump, two unexpected uh, outcomes of those elections, which have had a significant effect on the political systems in both of those countries. And so it's appropriate that I'm joined by an expert who has uh, acted as a commentator on election night for both British and American elections. Uh, Professor Jane Green is a professor of political science and British politics at Nuffield College, Oxford. She's the director of the Nuffield Politics Research Centre and also a co-director of the British Election Study, the gold standard in finding out what's actually going on beneath the surface in British um, elections. And we talked a little bit about uh, American elections alongside uh, some reflections on what really went on in the recent general elections in the UK and the Brexit referendum itself, and the impact those have had on British politics. Uh, Jane is also a co-author of a recent book, with a fairly appropriate title uh, called Electoral Shocks, Understanding the Volatile Voter in a Turbulent World. And I think that really sums up the challenge of explaining what's been going on over the last 10 years or so. So without further ado, um, let's uh, tune into our conversation. Uh, we spoke uh, just after the budget on uh, Wednesday uh, of this week, just a few days ago. And I began by asking Jane to tell us a little bit about the background of the British election study uh, and what it does. The British election study, yeah, um, it's been running for a really long time. So it's now the longest running social science survey in the UK. Um, it was founded by David Butler. And, uh, you know, that's really lovely for me because now I'm back at Nuffield where the election study was first founded by David. Um, and so since the 1960s, the British election study is is the way that we understand the, the dynamics and also the outcomes of those elections when we look at the individuals who are voting in those elections. So after every single election, there's been a post-election random probability survey. And so over all of those elections, since the first British election study, we're now able to track the changes that have taken place both in the electorate in terms of what the electorate, you know, the distribution of policy preferences and, um, you know, the distribution of different parties, voters over time, but also what is driving the vote? Um, what is driving the vote and what is driving the, the decision to vote over all those elections? So that's been the kind of backbone of the British election study. And then also more recently over or more recent decades, we've been able to take advantage of online methods of reaching um, individuals to survey them. And so now we're able, and we took over the study in 2013, since then we're able to track um, the same individuals over these really extraordinary periods of time in British politics that has followed, you know, when we took over in 2013. So we interview, we survey and use online um, about 30,000 people in each wave of the British election study panel, as well as then um, running the probability survey after each of those general elections as well. So if you think, you know, we, if you if you think about the, your kind of baseline um, of almost like normal politics um, in 2013, you know, when we start out, um, 
And then over that, you know, really extraordinary period um, in 2014 with the Scottish independence referendum, the general election, which of course followed the coalition government period, and then the EU referendum, which has had a dramatic impact on how people vote. The 2017 general election, the 2019 <laughs> general election. You know, we're not following the same individuals across all of those events. Um, but some people we can, and, and but we can focus in on how um, voters are switching their support over those elections. So it's so it's been an extraordinary time to be involved in it, and we do lots of other things with the British Election Study as well to try to link up other data. But the most important thing to know about it is it's a resource. You know, it's not just about our work; it's about the work of other academics, but it's also a resource that makes it possible for politicians and for and the media and for members of the public to understand why we get the election outcomes that we do and what's going on and kind of under the surface of the political focus on Westminster. And as, as you said, certainly in the UK, we've had um, a period of extraordinary um, sort of activity in elections, not not just the results, but sheer, the, the sheer number of them we've had from, um, mm. as I I remember pointing out to my students a few weeks ago. We you know the the period from 2010 to uh, 2020. We had a we began with a majority Labour government, um, and then we we went to a, a hung parliament and a coalition with the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. Then we had a majority Conservative government. Then we had a minority Conservative government. Then we had a majority Conservative government again, and all in the space of a decade. So, with the frequency of elections and and that sort of volatil- volatility of of, of outcome. Um, how how exceptional is that in um, in sort of recent history to have had that sort of um, volatility between those elections? There's there's something that's really unique, I think, about the British experience, um, and it's you know of course what we do is we keep one eye um, whilst we're studying the UK, we keep one eye on what's going on in other countries because this helps us to have a better understanding of the of what's really driving these changes. So if you look across countries and you look at the UK, let's imagine the world up until 2015, you see increasing fragmentation. um, So more people supporting other parties. You see the rise of support for radical right parties, for populists. You see the increasing importance of second dimension politics, you know, second dimension issues, primarily, I think, or or very substantially around the issue of immigration. Um, And it's a big, of course, you know, huge topic of exploration to sort of try to understand the other cultural dynamics, the longer term dynamics that that has been at play there. Um, But you see this kind of moving away from the mainstream parties across systems. And you see that in the UK. And then of course, we have this huge shift in Britain. Um, and in, you know, you, you, you have the referendum in 2016 and then there's 2017 and 2019 elections where you, you have a return of support for the two largest parties. Now in 2017, that doesn't deliver a majority government. And so again, you know, you've got that question about the electoral system over that period. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary change, however, because then in 2019, you get this strong or sufficiently strong majority for the Conservatives in able to, you know, of course, you know, infamously and famously to deliver on Brexit. So 2019 is the election that almost takes us back to this kind of world of two party politics, but also a world 
in which the largest party is able to have this kind of winner's bonus in the electoral system up to, to some degree more so than 2017 and to deliver this secure majority that we haven't seen since 2010. So 2010 to 2015 and, and before that as well, you know, huge questions over the representativeness of the electoral system because the people, the proportion of people who are voting for parties other than the two major parties, that's not getting translated into seats in parliament. And yet 2017 and 2019, you have that return to what looks like a normal electoral system kind of an effect. Um, and it's probably not entirely normal, like, I mean, under the surface, but, but looking more normal, so delivering this majority government. And I think, you know, is that unique? Is the number of shocks unique? Is the number of elections unique? Um, you know, you can think of other periods of time where lots of tumultuous change has taken place in politics. You can think of um, periods of time where there's been successive elections. We go back to the 1970s, 1974, to think about elections that were unable to secure majorities and therefore um, were, were essentially rerun. Um, sorry, 1974 and 1979. But you, you go, you know, the question, I think, that the really dramatic change, to me at least, seems to be that kind of, okay, well, one in one stage of this period, you're in this, kind of decline era, decline of support for mainstream parties. You know, everything sort of not looking like the electoral system, not really looking like it's working as it's sort of expected to. And then in a, such a short period of time, a huge resurgence in support for the two largest parties. And of course, a majority government. Um, and you can't explain those big flips without this enormous shock that happens in the middle. So we call them electoral shocks. You know, these really, um, sort of unusual uh, events or changes that nobody can ignore. I mean, even people that have really little interest normally in politics would know that the Brexit referendum took place and that something huge was happening and Parliament was unable to reconcile um, this big division that had, you know, caused rifts within the political parties. And we weren't able to secure, you know, the resolution of this referendum result. I mean, there's these moments that nobody can ignore. They're hugely salient. They force parties to compete around them and they change how we see political parties and politics and what and what's important in elections. Um, so I think, you know, I don't know if the, if the period is unique for the amount of tumultuous change, but I, I do think we're quite unique for kind of confounding those things that otherwise look like trends away from mainstream parties and, uh, you know, confounding some of the con concerns that people had around the representation of those votes for minor parties. Now, you know, what you can say, of course, is those minor party interests have now been captured by the mainstream party. So those voters are getting better represented. Um, whether or not that's now a more stable outcome, I think is, is the most, you know, it's kind of the next big question. Mm. And, and obviously our, our focus is um, on opposition. And as you say, the, the, the trend that people had identified sort of up to this most recent period was of um, a, a breaking down of the two-party system that we were entering a, a phase where sort of smaller parties were much more significant um, and, and even fringe parties, um, you know, the rise of the, the BNP in the sort of noughties and then um, UKIP, uh, the Green Party as well. And, and the sort of, the debate was around this sort of ongoing trend of the two major parties as kind of losing um, support. And as you say, we've, we've seen that trend now being bucked, but 
do you think that does the evidence show that that is um, what what's happened? That those have been now uh, accommodated by the two major parties, and that those have been sort of brought inside the tent, as it were. Um, those voters who were previously, you know, large numbers of voters um, uh, supporting the Liberal Democrats, and we saw a huge falling off of that support. Um, and of course, then after after Brexit, the uh, UKIP and the Brexit um, party, their voters um, also collapsing. Have those, as you say, directly now been folded back into the the, the two major parties? Does, does, is that what the, the trend is now showing us? I think that, you know, there's, there's several things going on, I think. I think to some degree, yes, because you think about what did UKIP voters, you know, those voters that, that moved very, you know, very substantially towards UKIP, certainly in 2014 in the European Parliament elections, in 2019 for the Brexit party, um, in the European Parliament elections, but also for UKIP in the 2015 general election. You know, did those voters get what they hoped they would get from British politics? Well, yes, I mean, they got Brexit and, and they got controls over immigration and they got a commitment to greater sovereignty, whatever that means um, for different kinds of individuals. So to some degree, I think that's true. Um, I think there's a, you know, there's a separate question, obviously entirely, entirely about Scotland, but I don't think it's just this. I don't think it's just an accommodation kind of outcome. I think it's, you know, we can't also look at this period without thinking, well, you know, was this were these elections after Brexit just such high, high salience? Were they, were they so important to people that the electoral system essentially gave the two largest parties a greater benefit? You know, did voters, and I don't know the answer to this, it's one of these things I think we need to go and test empirically. But it, but it was really striking to me in 2019 to see during the actual campaign that the support for the two largest parties was increasing. And of course, the Conservatives were the eventual beneficiary but support for both parties looked like it was changing during the campaign. And 2017 was also a really important election campaign. Um, so, you know, did voters look at the stakes and look at the electoral system, look at the constituency contest to a degree, to the degree that people um, understand their local competitive context in the constituency or even at a national level and think in this particular instance, I've got to go back to those two major parties, whether or not they accommodated their preferences, but, you know, maybe for more. Um, strategic reasons. And I think the other, the other thing that's going on here is, of course, the Liberal Democrats. Um, you know, if the Liberal Democrats weren't in a really precarious electoral position at the moment, you know, when I say precarious, I mean, I'm not suggesting that they're suddenly going to lose loads more support, but, you know, really, really tricky, really tricky to navigate both the experience of being in coalition and the electoral damage that was done to them but also trying to campaign in an environment um, where they, they really want to oppose the consensus that's now um, been achieved around leaving the EU and finding their kind of reason for being where the constituencies that they'd held, certainly in the South and Southwest, you know, many of which have got either quite convincing or marginal leave majorities, um, so how do they how do they do that? So that's part of this, isn't it? That the Liberal Democrats kind of disappeared as a major electoral threat during this period for different for, for those two different key reasons. Mm. And if we sort of look at that key event, what you call the electoral shock of of, of Brexit, um, 
it's not really comparable with any general election directly, is it? Because it's a, you know, it's a it's a very different um, electoral prospect. It's a um, a binary decision. It's something which crosses mm. and, and did cross party lines. Um, but I think your uh, conclusion is that it fundamentally changed the electoral dynamic for the elections that followed, and perhaps you know on an ongoing basis. Um, can you say a bit more about that? I mean, what you know, what was going on there? Was it simply that we had a a unique coalition of uh, essentially protest votes against uh, both the UK's membership of the EU, but also perhaps against the establishment, um, which is one reading of it, and that that then sort of um, carried over into the subsequent elections. Yeah, I don't think, so there's a kind of a long-term explanation for why we've seen the changes we have in the electorate. And those changes, incidentally, are that, you know, those kind of demographics like age and education now are far more important in explaining how people, or predicting how people vote than, than, um, the, than they were before. And the, the eventual outcome, of course, is, is that in 2019, the Conservatives were able to capture the greater majority of the working class vote. And so, you know, the red wall kind of phenomenon happened in 2019. So if we think about, you know, what is the change? What has led to it? I think there's a, there's a long-term explanation and there's a short-term explanation. And, I, and so there are others, other researchers, you know, in, in the field, look at those long-term dynamics that preceded the Brexit vote you know, the sort of geographic bifurcation of the electorate, but also Labour moving away gradually over the period of government or the period of opposition, really, um, with Tony Blair, up to Labour's historic victory in 1997. But, you know, Labour moving away from its voters, essentially, ideologically speaking, but also, I think, symbolically speaking, um, and possibly, you know, taking, taking some parts of the electorate for granted, and that's not to say that that's only something that the Labour Party does. I think, you know, safe seats are pretty much neglected by parties for, for highly strategic reasons. But, you know, they, they can sometimes they, that can sometimes result in quite dramatic shifts. Um, so that's the kind of long term explanation that almost, you know, you had this weakness that could be then built upon or could then be um, influenced very much more substantially. I mean, we point in our work from the British Election Study team to, you know, the, the sort of more fluidity in the electorate that allows electoral shocks to be more important as well. So that kind of longer term story about people kind of loosening their ties to political parties over time, which makes it possible for there to be very substantial changes. Um, but I think it's really hard to account for the realignment that's taken place in the electorate without that Brexit shock. So what has it done? I mean, essentially a very, very, very simple, extremely simple and, and, and short answer is I think, you know, if age and education were the dividing lines on second dimension issues before, which they were, and um, we saw that, you know, relationships of age and education levels for Lib Dem voting, for Green voting um, and for UKIP voting, um, and then you see second dimension politics come to be the mainstream dividing line. So the parties, the Labour and Conservative parties, and certainly Labour being forced onto this issue and the Conservative Party embracing the opportunity to be more pro-Brexit after the referendum. You know, you see that essentially, very simply, that second dimension kind of political contest becoming the major fault line in the election campaign. Not the only one, it hasn't replaced the left-right divide entirely but it's become a major fault line. 
And, you know, so in a sense, you can't, you can't say this was just a long-term story and you can't say it was just about the electorate changing over time. The electorate is responding to the choices on offer. And those choices became very firmly fixed around this question about Brexit. Um, so, and of course we see um, voters also expressing, you know, very clear preferences and this strong polarization around this binary issue. Um, and so that's, that becomes very important. It's not as, I think, polarized as we might sometimes caricature it as being, but it's nevertheless, you know, relatively speaking, a polarizing issue, just as independence is for Scotland. And, you know, the importance of the independence fault line became really, 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 you know, substantial after 2014 and managed to, you know, help the SNP capture the pro-independence Labour voters and, you know, and we saw what happened to Labour as a result, you know, just a year later. Mm. And you, you, you end there by talking about Labour. I think from the opposition perspective, the volatility really is quite marked from the fact that you had in 2015, the um, expectation being that there would be a uh, another hung parliament and that Labour might be in a position to form a government uh, in yeah. 2015 and a surprise um, conservative uh, majority resulting. Uh, so clearly a bad result for, for Labour there, followed mm. by the Brexit referendum. And then we have 2017, which um, was another shock in, in how well Labour did uh, compared to expectations. And this sort of shift back to two-party politics with the two major parties, both over 40%, um, you know, it was seen as almost a triumph for Jeremy Corbyn um, in depriving Theresa May of her majority. And then we have the sort of reversion um, two years later to what people had broadly expected to have happened in 2017 of a disastrous result for um, the Labour Party. So from their perspective, it really has been a, a volatile um, period. How do we explain the the outcome of, of, of 2017 being so out of kilter with what most political commentators and you know political scientists, if they were looking at the evidence, would have suggested would happen. Um, I think the the popular story is that well, Theresa May just had a terrible campaign, um, and Jeremy Corbyn did a bit better. But there's there's got to be more to it than that, hasn't there? Because it this this impact of the the Brexit vote sort of meant that Labour was having to um, to respond to that, and it seems that they they convinced enough people in both camps that they were on their side in 2017 and they didn't in 2019 um, for, for the obvious reason that the Conservatives were much more firmly aligned there. Um, but it, it seems that something happened in 2017 that, that sort of was almost a perfect storm for the Labour Party that was exceptional. Um, is, is, that your, is that your reading of it? Yeah, I think, I think there's a, I mean, this is a glass half full, glass half empty kind of question for Labour. And of course, some people Think it was still utterly disastrous um but it's you know you can't you can't look at 2017 i mean i i was talking just now about the fault line you know the sort of second dimension political fault line around brexit but and i but i also said you know this isn't that hasn't replaced left right um and it hasn't replaced all of those other all of those other components of electoral choice that we also think about like lead, leaders and left right politics and and other liberal authoritarian, other second dimension issues that aren't Brexit related. And I think, you know, what was Jeremy Corbyn very good at? Um, well, he was, 
He was good at winning in 2017 a lot of younger voters. I mean, the age divide amongst the younger voters in 2017 is really sharp. So far more younger voters supported Labour than they did the Tories in 2017. Um, and he was, you know, so in a sense, what he's doing there, and he's ensuring up support for Labour Party in cities, in urban areas. And urban areas tend to be those with more younger um, residents and also more graduates, right? Those people on higher incomes on average, but also those graduates who have got high levels of education. And so he's doing really well in 2017, competing for the traditional Liberal Democrat constituency. And I, so I think the Lib Dems are really key to this because, you know, in 2017, the Liberal Democrats aren't making a recovery. And Jeremy Corbyn is successfully appealing to those individuals, not just on Brexit, not just on remain, not just on the second dimension issues, but also the Labour Party is more popular among younger voters, especially female younger voters who are more pro-redistribution, um, more concerned about progressive politics. So, you know, you've got that kind of success. And I think you can't ignore the campaign. The campaign was very negative for Theresa May. It was very positive for Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, we have a, a paper where essentially what we show is that Jeremy Corbyn was reassuring prior Labour voters who had switched to don't know. That was the big change. And he needed to do that. I mean, he, you know, those Labour voters had supported Labour in 2015, weren't sure what to make of Jeremy Corbyn, weren't sure whether they could vote for the Labour Party again in 2017. And he reassured them over that election campaign in particular. And I think aided by Theresa May having a really, really tricky election campaign in that election. Um, so why is it so different in 2019? I mean, you know, if you're a Labour voter um, or a Labour supporter and you put your kind of money behind Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 and you just want him to do the same thing again in 2019. Um, but we've got two really, really problematic features in 2019. One is you've got Boris Johnson, who's far more popular amongst Leave voters. Um, so he's more popular and he's, he, he's able to win over those Labour Leave voters um, in substantial numbers in a way that Theresa May wasn't, but also the period has changed. You know, there's this far different context, but he's more popular amongst Leave voters. And he's able, therefore, to unify the Leave vote in a, um, in, a, in a significant way. And actually, the interesting thing is that the age gap is really, really big in 2019 for the old, at the older end. Um, so the older end really swing behind the Conservatives. And the Conservatives do slightly better amongst younger voters. They're not getting behind Jeremy Corbyn in the same way. Um, but of course, what the other, the other thing, I mean, I mean, taking aside Labour's strategic difficulties over their position on Brexit, but the other thing you've got happening there um, is that the, the Liberal Democrats start to recover. Now, and we kind of overlook this, right? Because we, we look at the number of MPs and the Lib Dems step back, they lose one MP, despite, you know, in that intervening period having defections and everything, but compared to the last election. But actually their vote share increases and their vote share increases in the kind of places that they're competing against Labour. And Labour's being squeezed on both sides. It's being squeezed on the one hand by the Tories in those lower um, income constituencies, the constituencies with high unemployment levels, like those traditionally leave voting constituencies. And it's and the Labour's being squeezed on the other side by the Liberal Democrats, who are, who are making quite large gains in terms of vote shares, um, just not enough to win any MPs. And so Labour's vote share 
um, comes under pressure on both sides. And um, of course, you know, the, the outcome is that they gain one seat and the Tories gain a majority of 80. So, uh, so it's, a, you know, same leader, very, very different context. Mm. And that suggests, doesn't it, that, that the job for Keir Starmer, who's now uh, a year into the job, um, is, is, is pretty tough, um, that he's got to um, rebuild the electoral sort of coalition that uh, any opposition needs to, um, to defeat a government. Um, but he's got to do that whilst facing in two directions, that he's got to uh, look to those Labour yeah. heartlands, which previous Labour opposition leaders could take for granted and, and use that as a basis from which to advance. He's got to appeal mm. back to them whilst at the same mm-hmm. time doing what we would expect in modern times a Labour leader to need to do, which is to reach out to Conservative voters um, in the South East and so on. So, um, mm. and, and with your point about the Liberal Democrats, he's also presumably also got to appeal to, to those sorts of seats and to the South West and, and, and so on. So he's in a really difficult position in terms of, you know, he's almost boxed in, isn't he, in, in terms of his electoral um, challenge. So what you've got, you know, we've got a majoritarian electoral system that favours two parties, um, but you've got a a more fragmented electorate. Um, So you've got this kind of two-dimensional electoral strategic challenge, which manifests itself geographically too. So it's not a coincidence that, you know, Boris Johnson unifying the Leave vote means that he wins more constituencies in the northeast and the northwest of England with traditional Labour heartlands. So that's really challenging. And of course, it's particularly challenging when the second dimension, let's call it remain for the just as a shorthand, is split between more parties, whereas the Leave side is not split because you know UKIP as an electoral force or Brexit Party as an electoral force were not able to, you know, and and perhaps not willing to divide the Conservative vote on the Leave side to nearly the same degree. So that's really challenging. And then, of course, you've got this four-dimensional competition in Scotland. And Labour fell back again in Scotland in 2019. Um, We didn't really focus very much on it because we were focused on the Red Wall. Um, But, you know, Labour just, you know, if we look at the contrast or the, or the really the, the kind of baseline, like you look at what happened in 2015 for Labour in Scotland, you know, a historic victory for the SNP. Labour has to make huge inroads and is failing to do so, is actually, you know, falling back somewhat in Scotland. So still not able to make a recovery in that more complex space um, around independence as well as Brexit, as well as normal kind of left-right politics. Um, so, you know, it is, it is really, it's a really challenging picture. And I think, I can really understand why Keir Starmer focused so much on competence because the voters, what he has to really, I think, bank on is that within this kind of, this this environment where voters are more volatile. I mean, incidentally, we saw volatility drop off in 2017 and then 2019, but the electorate has shown itself to have the propensity to be very volatile. So voters have switched before. So there are many voters who have voted Labour in the past for different reasons, either heartland kind of traditional Labour voters who have just recently switched to the Tories or prior Labour voters. And I think what he has to, he would have been banking on is that those voters who had some underlying tendency to, to support Labour over the years for different reasons would come back to Labour if the Tories are messing up. And 
I think, you know, we've seen that that's true. I mean, my work with Dan Snow and with Jeff Evans has, we've, we've started to look at those voters who are moving away from the Conservative Party over this short term period, over the Conservative Party, this Conservative government's handling of COVID. And, and of course, this is another, potentially another huge electoral shock, certainly around the question of competence, that so far, you know, there's a, there's, there's a hopeful sign, of course, for the Conservative government around the handling of the vaccine. But I can really understand why Keir Starmer would, would essentially be in this kind of holding pattern of trying to appeal to those voters who were lending their support to the Conservatives in 2019. And with Brexit potentially resolved um, and, you know, sort of awkwardly difficult attribution of what's Brexit based and what's COVID based in terms of economic difficulties the country may now face. Um, you know, really sort of biding his time to work out what Labour's policy offering is um, for voters who have who have lost faith in the Conservatives. Um, so yeah, but it's, it's a really difficult, I mean, it's a really, you know, our majoritarian electoral system, our two-party system is is predicated on sort of the stability of, of, of a predominantly one-dimensional set of competitional, you know, comp- competing um, uh, positions and mm. and within a two-dimensional structure it, it's certainly tricky mm. it's the swingometer isn't it <laughs> um I, I think the um the thing you mentioned there about um competence uh, clearly i think that's that's what Keir Starmer is um is making his um his main pitch on in the current um crisis understandably um mm. because it's quite difficult really to to get much sort of policy um uh, sort of differentiation um there i suppose but um you also talk about the the issue of um people losing faith in um in the government and it, it's always one of the things that a, an opposition can usually bank on is that as the longer a government goes on people just get fed up with it um and that governments degrade in their popularity and that's what we'd expect to see happen over time and by the time the next mm. election the conservatives will have been um in office for sort of 14 years um and it's you know we would expect to see that sort of tailing off of support and and yet on, on sort of one measure if you look at every general election their their vote share has actually increased sort of um election mm-hmm. after election mm-hmm. and we're not seeing that sort of uh, degrading of their uh, of their level of support in, in fact sort of the reverse and you know is is that something which again is is you know, is, is a challenge that, that we haven't really seen before, that we can't bank on the fact that uh, a government will necessarily degrade, that it has actually in some ways reinvented itself whilst in office, for, you know, which governing parties always try and usually fail to do. Um, and that you've got this sort of, uh, th- this sort of um, difficulty in working out, you know, how, how much of um, the next election is going to be about um, the Conservatives and, and the government's um, competence and and their popularity mm. uh, it's the age-old yeah. question of whether a government loses an election or an opposition wins yeah. it basically is what i'm getting around to asking which yeah. no one can ever definitively answer but we would expect that to advantage labor at the next election um but it m- may not necessarily be the case uh, yeah it's so interesting um so we are not wanting to kind of oh and in my other book which is called so and so, you know, available from all good book, bookshops. No, you know, plug no one... away, plug away. It's a con- it's a condition <laughs> of the, it's a condition of appearing on the podcast. You're allowed to do that. <laughs> oh, okay, brilliant. Um, well, we looked at this question, Will Jennings and I, in our book, The Politics of Competence. Right. So we looked at 
the question of how regular these costs of ruling are. And we tried to explain how costs of ruling come about. And our explanation was essentially to do with how blame changes over the cycle. So the beginning when you come into power, you have this honeymoon period and it's, it's very typical. I mean, if you, if you look across countries, across time, you know, you gather as much data as you possibly can. You can see these regular kind of U-shaped curves where governments tend to be popular at the beginning. And, you know, essentially what we're, we're saying, we're trying to explain there was like, well, people are still blaming the, the old guys, you know, and there's not much attention on the failings of a, of a new party in government. They haven't had a chance yet to fail. Um, they can, of course, have short honeymoon periods, such as Boris Johnson has had over because of COVID happening so quickly after the election, election victory in December before it all, before it all exploded. Um, so you see that, and then what we argue is essentially that, and it's pretty well um, documented, that the voters are looking or waiting blame more than credit. So we, we focus more on the negatives. And we do that, I think, for psychological reasons, but also because you know, our attention is focused on the negatives. And there's, there's not very many people apart from a party and government themselves who's really talking up the wins. Right? The, the media is focused on the, on the mistakes and so is the opposition party. And, and these things accumulate over time because if they're waiting, if we're waiting the negatives more than the positives and these things accumulate over time to the point where we don't really want to change our mind about this, this government. So we explain it like this, but the important thing is that that's not a law. Um, it's a tendency. And that's so true with so many things. And I think that's the danger is that we say, well, the electoral system does this. You know, that's the Duverger's law of, you know, majoritarian electoral system effects. It's like, well, no, it's a tendency. And the cost of ruling is a tendency. And I think what allows, and so if you look at, so one of the things we did in that book, um, in, the, in the particular chapter we were looking at this, was look at the, look at the periods of government but we don't see those costs of ruling. What's happening there? You use the word reinvention, and that and that is really the key. Um, if a government is able to reinvent itself, then by changing leader or dramatically changing its handling of something, then then you you know that then that law is no longer a law, right? I mean, you can do something about it. And I think the the reason the Brexit shock is so massive, massively important, is that it, it really does cause voters to reassess what the party stand for. And so you have a change of policy, a change of emphasis, and a change of leader. And that is a, an awful lot of change <laughs> in terms of, and we see the Conservative Party just today with the budget, you know, the Conservative Party, you know, talking about tax, taxation levels that we haven't seen in decades. I mean, this is not just a party that's changed on Brexit. The, the context, the shock of, coronavirus has forced the Conservative Party to change its economic direction too, um, as well as building on their commitment to levelling up and everything. So you've got this enormous change that's happened um, in the party. And I think the other thing to say is that, yes, it's true the Conservative Party increased its support and that, you know, the big surprise being 2010 to 2015. Um, so there you had a governing party doing lots of unpopular things with austerity and yet not getting the electoral penalty. But of course, the Liberal Democrats did. And so if we think about, you know, when, when are the costs of ruling kind of not happening? Well, it's, it's, it's really just very recently, isn't it? Um, and I think it's possibly a bit too early to say as well, given that we're still in the first year, really, year and a bit 
of Boris Johnson's period of government with an enormous amount going on um, that, that can still, you know, turn south, really. Mm. But I think we would expect um, probably that the opposition um, at sort of midpoint in the parliament would be substantially ahead, um, even if that was yeah. a narrow towards an election. So we're, we're not quite yeah. at the midpoint yet, but and, and of course, we're not in normal politics. So um, I think probably mm-hmm. there's going to be quite a lot of um, study of the of the polls as we get to the, the, the midterm. But um, mm. I mean, you, you do you know some work on um, on sort of polling as well and that, that sort of thing. I mean, how do you how do you rate Keir Starmer's um, chances of, of sort of uniting those um, those disparate audiences that he's got to to sort of put together into a coalition what are the early signs of of how well he's he's placed to do that Hmm. that's a great question i'm not sure that i know the answer um i think you know it's difficult isn't it to to kind of imagine what the potential appeal of keir starmer could be without a platform that would be capable of uniting different kinds of voters in different parts of the country. I mean, at the moment, you know, does he look like a competent alternative to Boris Johnson? Yes. Does that look more electorally persuasive when Boris Johnson is is not performing well, when the government is not performing well? Yes. Has Keir Starmer got a fair kind of crack at forming an alternative government when it's just really difficult for him to get out and about. It's really difficult for him to be in public settings. It's really difficult for his party to even look like a party as a unit. Um, you know, I think, so it's a really difficult, it's, it's a really difficult question because there's a kind of hypothetical Keir Starmer that isn't in a crisis that, is the opposition leader when the government's management of the economy is being called into question and whether there's more clear consequences of Brexit. I mean, this is the this is the really interesting thing to me right now is that if we weren't all focused on COVID, I think there'd be huge scrutiny on what's happening in the city and what's happening in terms of red tape and regulation mm. and trade. Um, you know, we see, we hear stories about this, but it's not really having any cut through. And that would be that would be the territory that he would want to be, I think, naturally competing on, is saying, look, you've mismanaged this Brexit deal. Mm. And this is economic hardship and pain. And it's causing economic hardship and pain to the very people you said you were going to help. And I think that would be that would be the kind of territory because that would unite the people that didn't want Brexit with the people who are being harmed by Brexit. It would unite the, the, the kind of Brexit divide and it would unite the economic divide. Um, so I think, I think that Akir Starmer that was operating in that kind of environment, I think would do well, um, but he's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like so much, it's, yeah. all, it's all predicated on circumstances outside of his control, which is often the, often the way for a, an opposition leader that they, they need the context um, to be different in order for them to, to make any progress at all. And um, I think, we, as you say, we haven't really seen a return to normal politics. Um, 
Uh, and it's just very difficult to oppose a government during a national crisis. It's just a very difficult thing to do, I think, um, to to be able to um, to create any yeah. sort of um, degree yeah. of difference there, where the the sort of the um, imperative is usually to support the government as much as you can. And I think he's gone quite a long way in not doing that. But um, the budget, uh, as you say, as we mm. record this, as we record this today is usually the, the opportunity the leader of the opposition has to really set out their their stall in response to mm. the government's agenda. And yet even that is really sort of being viewed through the, the lens of COVID and all of the measures that have been um, put in place for that. Um, I wonder if um, we can perhaps turn to um, some more electoral volatil uh, volatility um, over, the, uh, over the pond in um, the US. We've done a, a couple of podcasts looking at um, the American election. Um, and I just wondered, sort of, from your experience looking at both of those, I know you've been a, a commentator on election night for both UK and US um, elections. Are you seeing a similar sort of um, picture emerging in terms of the way that the parties are almost crossing over in their um, constituencies? You've got in the US, it, it does seem striking that the um, the party of the the working class is is now sort of much less clear in the US in the same way as you've had the the kind of um, the traditional Labour voters crossing over in, in the UK with the Red Wall. Um, you do seem to have this um, educational divide and the sort of the, the, mm. the working class vote sort of transferring to uh, to the Republicans now and so the, you know Trump mm. really sort of seeming to to act in the same way as, as perhaps Brexit did. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that parallel overly simplistic or is there something similar going on there? I do think it, I mean, I'm, I'm quite a, a big fan of simple. <laughs> I think, you know, I mean, it's not, <laughs> I think, I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I like the detail and I like, I like to turn stones that haven't been, you know, I like to leave no stone unturned and turn new things over and look at things in new ways. But I also think, you know, there's a kind of wood for the trees argument here, which is, you know, if we stand back, what's happening? Um, and I think there's a really important sort of populism dimensional story that's not just happening in the UK. And you do see that, I think, to some degree, in, in the demographic changes in America too. And, and it's not just about Trump and it's not just about sort of populism, which is one of these phrases that nobody can, can really settle on, but it's also about Hillary Clinton um, embodying a, a sort of, you know, a, a kind of set of characteristics in the Democrats that meant that it was very difficult for her to appeal for the, the traditional democratic base and the sort of move towards, you know, having the Democrats having been in office for so long under Obama and, you know, the, the, the sort of tricky issues around, you know, delivery for governments and um, for incumbents and the kind of, the, the, the ways the Democrats had changed um, and, and perhaps moved away from their core base in that regard, I think was, was also part of that interesting story. I think the big difference though in America is where the volatility is, because essentially you have this really strong polarization in the US. And so you have actually quite a lot of stability. I mean, I saw a great talk yesterday by Ruth Dassonville, 
University of Montreal, she was looking at electoral volatility cross-nationally across a set of cases. And we just, you know, you just don't see that in the US to the same degree. And it's because, you know, you don't have the fragmentation of the party system. So uh, electoral volatility is happening in the UK a lot of, to a substantial degree, because you've got more parties for voters to switch towards or away from. And that's changing over time. Of course, you don't see that in the US system. And you see this very, very strong ideological polarization in the US amongst people who identify with the parties. You also see people, you know, we, we forget how many people don't identify with the two uh, major parties in the US, but very strong partisan polarization amongst um, and between Republicans and Democrats. And so that is, that is I think, leading to, to lower electoral volatility, but you see a much less unified um, institutional configuration in the US. You see, you know, we, the US has been characterized by divided government for a long period of time and by intractable decision-making for a long period of time. And, um, you know, that's, I think, where a lot of the volatility, you can see a lot of where the instability in the system is happening. Um, and of course, Trump is his own phenomenon. There's lots of lots of kind of characteristics of the of the Trump vote that isn't this isn't shared, I think, around the Brexit issue. You know, those, there's the similarities and key differences there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I but I think there's a lot a lot we can learn from looking at the US and a lot the US can learn from looking at Western Europe and the UK. And you talk about the the um, issue of uh, uh, the greater polarization actually leading to some degree of stability in a sense there. Um, do you think that the um, the potential for um, more electoral shocks like that in, in the US therefore is perhaps a little bit less that, you know, as we catch up with the, so what's actually been going on um, there with the sort of the changes in, in demographics, um, we should be less surprised in, in future about what, what happens. Um, and, and similarly in, in the UK, I mean, if we, if we look at what's been going on, um, are they only shocks because we haven't expected them? <laughs> or are they things that are, are sort of unique phenomena <laughs> in, their own, in their own right? Yeah, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what do we really mean by electoral shock? You know, um, not all shocks kind of are completely unanticipated. I mean, the Brexit referendum is one of them, right? When we saw that coming, you can trace its origins back a really long way. You can trace the origins of Scottish independence a really long way. Um, but, you know, those, those shocks are events that are really high salience that we can't ignore and are not, are not normal within the normal run of politics. And I think, you know, big events that, that take us, like the global financial crisis, we define as a shock. It didn't come from nowhere, but it's not normal economics. It's not the normal kind of um, ebb and flow of GDP and inflation levels and unemployment levels. It's an enormous event. Um, I think COVID's an enormous event and it, and it will become electoral shock, not just a shock. It's a policy shock. It's a huge shock, exogenous shock. It becomes an electoral shock when the parties are competing over it, when there's political contestation of it. And I think, I think you could describe Trump as a shock, Trumpism as a shock. Um, and I think, you know, you ask the question of, is the, stability, is the polarization in the US the reason why shocks may matter less. And I think that's really, really important because why didn't Trump's presidency 
change that much? Why did it not cause an enormous electoral shift of Republican voters away from the Republican Party? I mean, it's caused some shifts and we have to wait for panel data to really understand where those shifts lay. Um, but it's not caused a desertion of the Republican Party. And I think that's precisely because of polarization, because the leap to move to the Democrats is, is huge in, in America. It's a massive decision. And if you're a dying hard Republican, it's a very, very difficult transition to make. And of course, Trump was enough for many people to make that transition. Um, but if we have now a more polarized electorate around the question of Brexit, perhaps a more st stable period around the question of Brexit. And, and that doesn't necessarily just need to be around Brexit. It can be how Brexit then maps onto our party affiliations and our party preferences. And we saw, as I said, lower volatility in 2019. And to some degree, 2017, 2015 was the real high point in terms of switching in the UK. Um, then it then it is likely that shocks are going to matter somewhat less because essentially we're more wedded to our political camps, our political tribes, and less and more resistant, and it's more resistant to shifting, um, more likely to see things positively on our side, but also it's just a bigger leap to go to a different position, to go to a different party. So, you know, having said that though, if there's one thing that changes people's allegiances, then it's something as big and important as a major electoral shock. So it can still, it can still happen. Well, I'm sure that um, many people would, um, would like to look forward to a period of greater stability in all aspects of life, really, and um, some normality um, back into politics yeah. as well as national life would be quite welcome, I think. Um, but um, I think we should yeah, always yeah. Uh, perhaps expect the unexpected, but hopefully not too, not too often. Um, Jane, thanks very much indeed for joining us on the podcast. Um, and uh, uh, we will um, give a, a further plug uh, to your books um, and, uh, and put uh, some of the details <laughs> um, on, the, uh, on, the, on the website, on the listing there as well. But thanks very much for joining us. No, thank you. Thanks very much. Real pleasure. Professor Jane Green there, and I'm delighted that she was able to join us to try and make some sense of what's been going on in our elections in the UK in recent years, and indeed in the United States. And as promised, another plug for the book, of which she is a co-author, uh, with colleagues who also worked on the Nuffield election study. Uh, the book is called Electoral Shocks, the Volatile Voter in a Turbulent World. Uh, it was published in uh, 2020, and you can uh, order that wherever you get your uh, books from for uh, £25 or less, which uh, in academic terms is an absolute bargain. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Opposition Cast. Thanks for making it to the end. And uh, as I always say, do make sure you're subscribed so you are always alerted um, on the um, slightly random timescale that we sometimes put these out at uh, when they go up and uh, share with people you think might be interested and uh, uh, if you haven't listened to previous episodes, do go back and listen to our back catalogue as well. There will be another episode coming along uh, fairly shortly, in a couple of weeks' time, and uh, quite looking forward to uh, the guests we've got lined up uh, for that. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks for joining us, do look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies and presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. 
Our excellent theme music is by Tom Hector, and you can find us online at oppositionstudies.net. And yes, that was the first time that we've mentioned our theme music composer, Tom Hector, in the closing credits. After 15 episodes, I think it was about time. If you want to check out his other music, please do so at hectorandtheleaves.bandcamp.com. Nice.